pray, pray with me, please. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to see your glory. Open our ears to hear your word. Open our hearts to receive your grace. Open our lips to sing your praise. And then open our hands, Lord, to serve others for your name's sake. Amen. It's uh, such a joy to be here again. I, I always get excited when I get a chance to come back to this beautiful valley. And I love that when I'm here or at Incarnation, I look around and I see so many dear friends built over these last five years. Uh, but what I really love is that when we come here, I look around and there are more and more people I've never met. That's an awesome thing, uh, a sign of God's goodness, how the gospel is bearing fruits among you and through you uh, and bringing new people into the fold. That's a, an incredible thing. When Kevin called me um, several weeks ago um, to let me know that he was inviting Nancy, um, that's a good thing, by the way. Uh, it's a wise choice to uh, invite, invite my wife uh, to do almost anything. Uh, and then he said, oh, and we'd also like you to preach. Um, I said, well, what's the text? What scripture do you want me to preach on? And um, I was thinking, oh, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got a few good ones, I think, in, in, in my bag. Um, and he said, um, well, would you mind tapping into our series? I said, no, I'm glad to do that, Kevin. And he said, ah, we're coming to the end of a series on 1 Samuel. And I thought, it's been a long time since I preached on 1 Samuel. And I said, uh, okay, where are you landing? And he said, uh, chapter 28. And I knew I'd never preached a sermon on 1 Samuel 28. Um, and uh, it had been eons since I'd even given any thought to the story of Saul and the witch of Endor. Sounds more like a uh, J.R.R. Tolkien novel. But here we are. <laughs> I said yes. I, I am your obedient servant. Um, I've set my, for myself uh, an additional challenge. Um, you know, one of the things Nancy always says to me uh, the night before I preach anywhere, uh, she says, make sure you've just got one sermon. Um, that's, that's a fault that we pastors sometimes fall into. We just have a lot to say, and sometimes we can't make up our minds, so we just do two sermons in one, and you can pick which one you like better. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to try to weave together the Saul story with an appeal to you uh, to, um, to get excited about what brought Nancy up here, and that was to talk about catechesis, this funny word, uh, passing on the faith to the next generations. Um, and I hope by the time I'm done this morning, you'll see how the story of Saul and the witch of Endor actually fits together beautifully with that challenge among God's people to pass on the faith to our children, to other generations. First Samuel wrote one commentator, doesn't seem to have a lot to command people's attention or certainly their affection. It lacks the pastoral charm of Genesis, the worshipful poetry of the Psalms, or the level-headed practicality of Proverbs. Apart from that iconic David versus Goliath, Goliath scene, which everybody knows, 1 Samuel reads like a sorry mishmash of daytime TV feuds, low-speed chase scenes, and a touchy prophet busting the chops of the new king. And we get some of that today. 
problem could lie in its branding, being lumped into the blandly named historical books section of our Bibles. Uh, 1 Samuel seems destined for being picked last in gym class or more appropriately for a Bible study. So based on popular perception and its context, 1 Samuel is usually dismissed as being boring and irrelevant. It's a book that it's okay not to like. That's the disclaimer. But I'm still preaching on it. And how can you not like a story like the one that's assigned to me, Saul and the Witch of Endor? Um, I, I will confess, um, I, I'm, I'm usually pretty disciplined in my uh, my preparation for preaching. I, I focus my study pretty quickly on the text at hand and what, what will spill into the sermon. But boy, I, I went on a lot of rabbit trails uh, the last few weeks, uh, looking at uh, articles about witchcraft and especially necromancy. When's the last time you heard about necromancers? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. And, but here's the stunning and shocking thing. Um, that's not just a history lesson. Uh, necromancy, conjuring the dead, is alive and well in our culture. Uh, I found an article from this year in the Wall Street Journal. I was just in Jerusalem at a global Anglican conference with 2,000 other Anglicans from all over the world. And at the end of the week, we heard read by the Archbishop of Rwanda a letter to the churches which had been crafted that week. And among the things it warned against, the loss of faith in the gospel, secularism, it mentioned witchcraft and libations. I, I can honestly tell you, I've never been in a church conference anywhere where we were warned against the dangers of witchcraft and libations. Believe me, the Africans in the room perked up because they know how real it is. And the Americans who didn't perk up were just ignorant, not knowing how pertinent it is. Almost from the start, Saul's disobedience to God has compromised his career. The story of Saul and Endor is not the end of Saul's story. We've got one more week in this series, but it's the beginning of the end, as you'll hear next week. This is a story about Saul's final isolation and deterioration. It's the story of a man who is dying from the inside out. When Samuel tapped Saul to be king way back at the beginning of the story, um, he layered on Saul a, a set of expectations and he listed explicitly things to reject. Chief among his expectations was that Saul would, would govern and, and live according to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the rekindled memory of what Moses had taught God's people. Samuel had in mind things like this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a wizard, or a necromancer. Saul knew those warnings from Deuteronomy. And initially, he obeyed. He dismissed, sent packing the necromancers, the mediums, the sorcerers, the wizards. He rid the land of all of them. But now, here he is in the face of the Philistine army, and he's scared to death. And he turns to Yahweh, the Lord, for guidance and assurance. 
and finds what? Heaven is closed to him. God will not hear Saul's voice. The God whom Saul has sought to serve and trust. And I found myself wondering, really? Did he really trust God? Or was he just a nominal follower of Yahweh? That God now is not available to Saul. That's shocking. God will not listen to his appointed king. Saul is abandoned. He tries the conventional means. Dreams, casting lots. I know that sounds weird. That's a story for another day. Why would people cast lots? Well, they do it in the book of Acts to choose a successor to Judas. Dreams, lots don't work. Prophets don't work. Nothing Saul knows to try conventionally in orthodox fashion gives him God's ear. He's desperate. It's like a person with a terminal illness. He tries all clinics and experts when nothing avails. Uh, to, he turns to any possible treatment when conventional medicine will not heal. He turns to any faint hope. Saul's like that. He's grasping at straws at this point. Saul, when, when approved orthodox religion will not reassure, goes elsewhere against the prohibitions that he had accepted initially which had been reinforced again and again by Samuel and issued by Saul himself in a royal edict. He seeks help from a medium, a necromancer. And here we see Saul at a moment of moral exhaustion and despairing faith. He's at the end of a failed life. It's a grim scene. The writer makes it very clear it's a grim scene at night. And Saul is hidden in disguise. He's no king. He's a frantic man with no resources, a divided self, marked with shamed incongruity. His life has long since ceased to match the values of faith that he espouses. As a last resort, with nowhere else to turn, with all hope gone, he turns to a necromancer, a medium, and says, bring up Samuel. Samuel, that towering prophet who had anointed Saul. Even when dead, Samuel dominates the scene. Samuel says, now conjured from his own death, why do you ask me? It's an interesting sentence. Me, Saul. Did you know that Saul's name is that word, ask? Saul is the needy asker. Yahweh's turned away. Now Samuel turns away. It's an instant replay of chapter 15. You probably don't remember Kevin's sermon in chapter 15, or maybe it's emblazoned in your memory, um, but I'll, I'll, re I'll refresh your memory. Um, in chapter 15, already, uh, Samuel had asked Saul, why did you not listen? The word listen, you need to remember this, is Shema. Say it with me, Shema. Okay, we'll come back to that. Chapter 15, verse 1, makes it abundantly clear. Saul's anointing is for one thing. His anointing is for listening. His only assignment is to listen. To listen to God. But by this stage of the story, at the end, he imagines himself so autonomous, so 
free in his own mind that he can decide for himself and need listen no longer. Pointing is for listening. Saul hasn't listened. So he will no longer be anointed. Where there's no listening, there will be no anointing. Because Saul has not listened, he has forfeited his throne. This is really the guts of my whole message today. This one sentence. Listening is everything. Even sacrifices, which are so crucial and and so much in the foreground a lot of times in the Old Testament. Even sacrifices are not as important to Yahweh, the Lord, as listening. Which is why the fundamental confession of faith of God's people was something that they actually called the Shema. The listen. That's That's what their creed. We'll come back to that. So in chapter 15, Saul confesses his sin. He admits he's listened to the people, not to the Lord or to Samuel. But Saul is rejected. Already in chapter 15, his confession is ignored. No forgiveness is offered. Now come back to chapter 28. Samuel says again to Saul, you did not listen. You didn't utterly destroy the Amalekites, God's enemy people. You didn't utterly destroy. You left livestock to wander. Cows, lambs bleating and cows lowing. You did not utterly destroy as I commanded you. In this moment, you will be utterly destroyed. And then this ominous last word from Samuel to Saul. Tomorrow, tomorrow, you'll know death, destruction, Utter nullification. What had been decreed by God in Deuteronomy and long anticipated in the story Saul now experiences in his own body. Samuel's verdict nullifies Saul's royal power. And so the the picture we have of Saul in chapter 28 is of someone with a deep sense of failure who's empty. So he falls to the ground, prostrate, powerless, as good as dead. Eugene Peterson wrote a wonderful book on uh, the prophet Jeremiah. He called it a long obedience in the same direction. It's a great book. You should get it. The story of Saul is the exact opposite. It's a story of a long disobedience in the wrong direction. And it has led to a tragic ending. Uh, My son and daughter-in-law's pastor in Nashville, a guy named Jim Thomas, has said about this story, the most helpless soul in the world is the soul that has been abandoned by God. But here's the thing. C.S. Lewis said, God gives people what they most want, including freedom from himself. And that's precisely what Saul has chosen. Autonomy. Self-rule. He wants to make his own decisions. He wants to... All all the shots. He stopped listening to God long ago. And so God gives him what he chooses. Freedom. Where does it end? Absolute tragedy. So what do you do with this story? There's only one thing to do to it. Listen to it. Verse 15, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. That's 
That's pretty much the last word from Saul on his own life. God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Saul's problem is that he is living without the word of God. Could there be anything more terrifying than to be cut off from all communication, all communion with God in your most critical moment? Can you imagine it? I mean, just imagine the worst place you've ever found yourself in life. Maybe it's where you are right now. Or last year. Or maybe you're like a friend of mine who got in my face one Sunday when he thought I'd had too much bad news before I got to the good news. And he said, uh, I just come to church to be made happy, and cheerful. I want to rejoice. Within six months, everything had turned sour in his life, including the death of his wife. What do you do with this story? Saul's problem is that he was without the word of God. And that was tragic. What do you do with this story? Well, let it frighten you. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. That's an important message. Last time we see Saul, he's walking out into the night cut off from God, cut off from God's word. Kind of like that little-known follower of Jesus named Demas, who in 2 Timothy 4 just drifts away, walking in the wrong direction, tired of listening, no longer listening at all to God. Can you imagine, in your worst situation, being cut off from God? Everything hinges for you and me on being listeners. The foundational passage of scripture for our approach to passing on the faith to our kids is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. This is the passage I alluded to before. It's called the, the Shema. It's, it's sometimes called by Christians the Jesus Creed because this was, this was the confession of faith that Jesus had learned as a child. Hear, O Israel, Shema. Listen, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So in the Shema, we see that the oneness of God's being demands the heart, the entire being of his people. Life in its entirety is focused on God. But, but how does that occur? How, does it, how do we get to that point? How does that happen for us? Well, this is the landscape of what we in the church have always called catechesis, passing on the faith from one generation to another. The Shema this word to which we are invited opens up four primary aspects of forming faith. The primary script is scripture. Here, listen is the first word. Here I've been helped a lot by a paper that, uh, that Pastor Aubrey wrote uh, and delivered to uh, a bunch of us at a, a synod gathering in Roanoke. 
Um, so as we think about this job, as you all are right now, how do we pass on the faith to our children? How do we, we've already been doing catechesis of the Good Shepherd with the smallest children. And, and now we want to layer in a whole nother level of catechesis for, for older children. You know, how, do we, how do we think about that? Well, the primary script is scripture, the, the great drama of our redemption. That's the primary script. The primary context is baptism. Notice what comes next in the Shema. The first word is here, and it alerts us to the role of God's word of scripture. And the next thing is, O Israel. Well, that alerts us to this. It prioritizes that God speaks to us as a people, speaks to us corporately. The primary context for receiving God's word is the community God has created. So we reject the notion that our children are neutral in relation to God until they reach some mythical age of accountability. We have to teach our kids, as well as adults, what God has done for them in, in Christ's death and resurrection and what he applies to them through the means of grace in the life of the church. Our job is not to convert our baptized children. Rather, we teach them to persevere in the faith that they've already received in baptism. We don't treat them as outsiders until they're old enough to make a profession of faith. We enfold them into the life of the body from their earliest days. As soon as they can chew, give them the bread, someone has said. Little glib, perhaps. But it's incongruent to, to baptize a child of God's covenant promise and then doubt the reality of that promise until the child is older. A baptized person is a Christian until and unless that person. The real heart of passing on the faith to our kids is to form in our children what you could call a covenantal identity, a sense of belonging to God and to the church. Baptism is the taproot and catalyst for lifelong transformation. That's where we begin this job of catechesis. When we tell our kids, small children, teenagers, when we tell adults that God is their father and that Jesus died for their sins, we're telling them something that is true. And we want them to know it, embrace it, to feel it. We must tell every baptized person in our church, you are a child of God. This is your covenant identity. Well, if the primary script is the Bible and the primary context is baptism, the primary event of passing on the faith is, is worship. Let's go back to the Shema. God's word is addressed to a gathered people. So the regular primary event, the context in which we do pass on the faith is the regular gathered and ordered worship of the church. Our weekly liturgical worship is the third element of our catechism because we resemble what we revere. We become like what we worship. You could say liturgical worship is basically children's church. So it's important that our kids are with us at least some of the time. And the primary structure, finally, of catechesis is intergenerational relationships. Last year at our synod, we heard uh, a seminary president from Canada, Gordon Smith, make the case that the witness of scriptures in a virtually every human culture, that one of the most pivotal and thus crucial dimensions of human formation and thus spiritual formation is the intergenerational dynamic. Older men with younger men, older women passing on the faith to younger women. One generation encouraging, blessing, transmitting wisdom to the next. And yet it's often observed that this is a missing dimension of congregational life in so many places. Congregations increasingly stratified along generational lines.
You'll learn how to fast and pray and repent and celebrate and serve the good of your neighbors, not so much by being lectured on those things, but by associating with people who do these things with regular ease and flair. When it gets reinforced through the relationships on God's people. And that means that essential for passing on the faith is our homes. Let me read through the Shema one more time. And notice how upfront we get those four things I've talked about. Scripture, the church, worship, intergenerational relationships. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Those things that we do here in worship now seep into our home life and take possession of our hearts. When I was leaving the house this morning, I I, I took one more look around the room at at John and Nancy Hayes. And there's this lovely little plaque um, sitting on a a credenza that I hadn't seen before. It's it's a quote from uh, St. Augustine. Oh, Lord, thou didst strike my heart with thy word. And I love thee. That's what I pray will happen in your homes, that the Lord will strike the hearts of children and parents alike, of single people and lonely older people, that the Lord will strike our hearts with his word and make us love him. God's word overflowing into our homes. That's the vision of the Shema. It's making our homes conducive to listening to God. And the Shema talks about doing that in a rhythm and a routine with creativity. It's about sleeping and eating, waking and walking, driving in the minivan, not immediately gravitating to Marvel films. I love this sentence from Aubrey. Deuteronomy 6 shows us we need to be creative. Notice the great Shema begins in worship and ends in interior decorating. I mean, get really creative. How can we keep the word resounding in our kids' ears, in front of their eyes? I don't know, stencils on the walls, books of art, Christian stories lying on tables, Manger sets that don't get packed away at Christmas, but that stay on the shelves year-round. Discovering ways to engage Scripture. Discovering ways to become listeners. That's the critical enterprise that we're to be about. Becoming listeners. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're a listener when you're letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Let me just whip through couple, three quick pictures of what this looks like. Right out of the Bible, the Bible itself. Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, 
the word of the Lord came to me. He says it right at the beginning. It's a word we read at every ordination of every deacon on his or her pathway into full-time ministry. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah said. Later on, for 23 years, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah writes, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You get the picture? For 23 years, Jeremiah got up every morning and listened to God's word, and then he spoke. Then he spoke. His certainty and his regularity, his whole life's mission was shaped All of the surprises in his life, all the creativity that he was able to muster came because every morning for 23 years, he got up and he listened for God's word. Henry Nouwen, a modern saint, one of my favorite literary teachers, said spiritual life is a life in which we struggle to move from absurd living to obedient living. Absurd, he said. The word comes from a Latin, sordus, which means Death. An absurd life is a life where you live dead to the voice which speaks to us in our silence, God making his presence known. He said the alternative to an absurd life, a deaf life, a non-listening life, is an obedient life. And at the root of the word obedience is audire, the Latin verb which means to listen. Living a mature Christ-like life is listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and then responding. When I was a young seminary intern in, in Germany, in, in the city of Nuremberg, I, I served in a church that had been built in the 13th century as a leper's chapel. Right in the tiny little narthex that you had to pass by every Sunday morning on the way into the sanctuary was a statue that always caught my attention of an old man with one his head cut to the side and one hand behind his ear. And the inscription was from Isaiah 50, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to hear, to listen like one being instructed. So here's my question for you this morning. Does the Lord waken your ear each day? Are you listening? For him to speak his word to you? Which is another way of asking, how long since you took your Bible in hand to read? It will remain a stranger to us. We will remain deaf to the Lord, living an absurd life until we read it as a word spoken to us. Everything depends, I'll say it again, everything depends on our becoming listeners. In the morning, St. Ambrose said, take nothing in your hand until you've been gladdened by the thought of God, hearing his voice. It's the one thing needful, Jesus said to Mary. It's the way to be blessed. That's what we said at the beginning of worship this morning when we read and prayed together Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who listens, who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his word day and night. That's what Jesus did. If you go back later today and you read Psalm 1, you won't find any prescriptions, any commands in it. You'll find merely a description of the blessed life. Blessed is the man. Well, Jesus is that man. He's the one who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Never once 
He lived with wicked people. He was surrounded by them. He never once walked in their counsel, never once sinned against the word of God, never once mocked righteousness. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and in that he was blessed. He delighted in the word. He loved the word. What's the earliest picture we see of him as a child? He's 12 years old, and he's sitting in the temple with the teachers of the word, listening, engaging. How did he survive that scene in the wilderness when he was tempted to uh, to uh, have great power and, and, and great revel- relevance and, a, and, a, and an earthly kingdom? Well, for 40 days, he meditated on God's word, and that was his that was his weapon. Man does not survive by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And on the cross, what did he do? He prayed scripture. Here's the thing. You and I have the same resources available to us in our battle against sin. We have just what Jesus had. We have just what Jesus had. The grace of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, the truth of God. We can love God's word. We can help our kids fall in love with God's word. We can meditate on it day and night. We can find creative ways to get it resounding in our ears. Jesus became for us like the chaff that someone talks about. He took the judgment we deserved. He endured suffering so we wouldn't have to perish. He took the death we deserved and then rose again. He became sin for us here. Listen. Saul was blown away like chaff. Because he wouldn't listen. Everything in the Jesus life hinges on our becoming and remaining a listening people. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.